0: Welcome to the Michigan Constitution podcast, where the citizens of the Mitten State seek the pleasant peninsula between their state and federal identities through a deeper understanding of how Michigan's Constitution and its defining case law affects their everyday lives. Your host, Tony Snyder, is a licensed Michigan attorney with more than a decade of experience in private and government practice. Through this podcast, you'll better understand the unique characteristics of Michigan's supreme law and probably learn a few fun facts about federalism too. And now here's Tony.
1: Welcome back to episode number 38 of the Michigan Constitution podcast. This time we're going to continue our discussion about the right to a jury trial under Article 1, Section 14 of the Michigan Constitution. But first, your spoonful of legal ease. The purpose of this podcast is merely to teach you what's in the Michigan Constitution. Each podcast, we'll review a different article section, we'll talk about what it means, and we'll review Michigan case law, which helps us to better understand the effects of those constitutional provisions. Here's what this podcast is not. It is not legal advice. It is not legal expertise. Although I am a licensed attorney in the state of Michigan, I make no warranties as to the veracity of the statements I make within this podcast. First of all, I don't practice constitutional law, I practice administrative law. Second, the laws change on a day-to-day basis, as does case law. What might be applicable the day I make a statement about the Michigan Constitution could very well be outdated by the time I post this podcast. If you think you're going to become a Michigan Constitutional Scholar because of my podcast, you're sadly mistaken. you do better with a Ouija board and a Magic 8-Ball. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. If you need Michigan legal advice, you would be well served to contact the State Bar of Michigan and ask for their Lawyer Referral Service Program for a referral to an attorney who specializes in your legal needs. Our next case, Yan versus All American Transport Company, a Michigan Court of Appeals case from 1981, again addresses the ability to request a jury trial, but this time, the Michigan Court of Appeals finds against the decision by the trial judge saying the judge should have allowed the case to go before a jury and here's why the plaintiff mr leo yan filed a lawsuit against defendant all american transport for alleged negligence when the defendant company filed their answer to the complaint they not only denied liability to mr yan but also requested a jury trial as lawsuits are wont to do it took about 18 months for the process to wind its way to trial. In May 1979, a last-minute settlement conference was held in the judge's chamber one hour before the trial was to commence, and it was to see if the two parties could potentially resolve their dispute. It was at this settlement conference where it was discovered that the requisite jury fee was never paid. The plaintiff offered to pay the fee, but the judge refused it from the plaintiff since the plaintiff never filed a request for a jury when they filed their lawsuit. The trial judge did, however, tell the defense attorney that the court would accept the jury fee from him as the defense had initially requested a jury at the time the defense filed their answer to the complaint. The defense attorney spoke with his client and learned the client did not want to proceed with the jury trial. But instead would prefer a bench trial. One important factor to this fact pattern is that the computer system for the trial court showed that a jury fee was paid on December 26, 1975, by the defendant. This will be important to the case. Any rate, the trial judge conducted a bench trial and ultimately dismissed the lawsuit in favor of the defense for a judgment of no cause of action plaintiff appealed the matter, and this Court of Appeals addressed the case via this case law opinion that we're reviewing now. The Michigan Court of Appeals begins their decision by quoting from an earlier case we reviewed, the Jameson v. Lloyd case. They reminded us that for a party to be entitled to a jury as a matter of right, two requirements must be satisfied. First, there must be a timely demand, and second, there must be a timely payment of the jury fee. But where a party fails to properly satisfy the prerequisites for obtaining a jury trial, then the decision will be left to the discretion of the trial judge. But then the Court of Appeals goes on to say that in this case, they were compelled to find that the trial court abused its discretion by refusing to allow for a jury trial in this lawsuit. And they rely on a Michigan court rule, specifically 508.4, which reads in part,
0: The failure of a party to file a demand as required by this rule or to deposit the jury fee by the close of the pretrial conference constitutes a waiver by the party to receive a trial by jury. A demand for trial by jury, as herein provided, may not be withdrawn without the consent expressed
1: in writing or in court by the parties or their attorneys. Where the trial judge went wrong, these judges wrote, was due to the failure of the trial judge to hold a pretrial conference. And because Michigan Court Rule 508.4 uses the pre-trial conference as a countdown clock for a request for a jury trial, our Michigan Court of Appeals wasn't really sure when the deadline to request the jury technically occurred. Regardless, the jury demand had been filed and the jury fee had been paid. The Court of appeal said it made zero sense that the judge would grant the defense the sole and exclusive right to move forward with a jury or to rescind that request by granting a bench trial. After all, the Michigan court rule requires an agreement by both parties to withdraw the jury request. The rule does not give that exclusive authority to the party who filed and paid for it. It was for that reason that the Michigan Court of Appeals found in favor of Plaintiff Jan, determined that the trial court judge did abuse his discretion, and remanded the case back to the trial court for a new trial with a jury. Our next case of People v. Guy, a Michigan Court of Appeals case from 1982, is a criminal case which is going to address whether or not a black defendant really had a jury of his peers if less than a majority of the jurors were a racial minority. Here's what's going on. Defendant Larry Guy was arrested in Battle Creek for, among other reasons, attempting to pull a gun on a police officer. Just prior to trial... Guy's defense attorney moved to dismiss the case for failure by the prosecution to provide a fair cross-section of Calhoun County's population from which to select a jury. At hearing on the motion, the defense provided four maps of the greater Battle Creek area showing the location of the residences of 98% of the jurors who were summoned for the defendant's trial. The map showed only four people from a northeast Battle Creek area, which is an area with a heavy concentration of black residents. The court found that indeed this area was underrepresented within the jury pool, considering the proportion of the total county population living in the area. For that reason, testimony was subsequently taken from the jury board clerk, asking about the procedure used to select the potential jurors. The testimony disclosed that the procedure was required by statute and was closely followed. The jury board clerk opined that underrepresentation within the jury pool from the northeast corner of Battle Creek might be due to a lesser proportion of those residents being registered to vote. Additionally, people in that area may have moved in and out more frequently, making it difficult to contact them by mail. The jury clerk also testified that neither race nor color was a subject of inquiry on the questionnaires filled out and returned by prospective jurors. For those reasons, the trial court found that the statutory procedure was not responsible for systematic underrepresentation of the area in question and denied the defendant's motion to dismiss. The Michigan Court of Appeals agreed with the trial court that the pool of potential jurors may have been underrepresented by the neighborhood in which the defendant lived, but that was based purely on the folks who, number one, were randomly selected and sent the questionnaire, and number two, filled out and returned their questionnaire. The Michigan Court of Appeals relied upon a United States Supreme Court case with a similar fact pattern to resolve our case at hand. They start off by noting a defendant is entitled to a jury which contains a representative cross-section of the community, And they looked to the United States Supreme Court case of Duren versus the state of Missouri, which held In order to
0: establish a prima facie violation of the fair cross section requirement, defendant must prove one, that the group alleged to be excluded is a distinctive group in the community, two, that the representation of this group from which juries are selected is not fair and reasonable in relation to the number of such persons in the community, and three, that this underrepresentation is due to systematic exclusion of the group in the jury selection process.
1: Now, based on these three requirements, things were looking good for Defendant's motion. The Court of Appeals said that the first requirement regarding a distinctive group being excluded was true. They point out that the trial court found there was an underrepresentation of the northeast quadrant of Battle Creek residents missing from within the jury pool. And it was true the second requirement which the defendant was to meet, this jury pool did not contain a fair and reasonable number of persons as reflected in the community. However, it was the third element where the Court of Appeals points out the defense failed. The defendant could not prove that the underrepresentation of black residents in the jury pool was due to a systemic exclusion based upon the jury selection process. Going back to the Duran versus Missouri United States Supreme Court case, the Michigan Court of Appeals said that to prove systemic exclusion, the defendant would have to have shown the underrepresentation of a distinct group would have to be inherent to the process utilized but the court was unable to find any evidence which would establish discrimination on the ground of race or color to be an inseparable basic characteristic of a procedure involving random selection of potential jurors from a registered voter list. Particularly when neither race nor color are used as a subject of inquiry during the questionnaire process. So maybe said another way, there is no affirmative action implemented when pooling potential jurors for a jury trial. There is neither a set number of minority residents who are to receive a questionnaire, nor is there a set number of questionnaires which must be received back from minority residents in a community. The Court of Appeals went on to note, if an in-depth statistical study were created, it would likely show that the proportion of people registering to vote varied significantly in groups categorized according to age or marital status or religious, ethnic, racial affiliations or origin, or even geographic area or sex. But because none of those factors are considered in the course of the jury selection process, there is no systemic exclusion of any such group. Finally, the court points out that people who do not register to vote are systemically excluded, but a group of people who fail to register to vote is not considered a distinctive group within a community as required under the United States Supreme Court's Durin case. For that reason, although the defendant met the first two requirements of the Durin test, they could not meet the third requirement, and as such, their motion to retrial was denied. Next up, Tomlin versus the Department of Health and Human Services, a Michigan Court of Appeals case from 1986. This case is a little different than what we've been talking about. This is whether or when an administrative matter can go to a jury. Now, please understand what administrative law is. Administrative law is the executive branch executing the laws as passed by the legislature. When a governmental entity does something, it traditionally is acting under the banner of administrative law. And administrative law is a legal creature that I could spend hours and hours talking about, but I won't. One, because it'd likely bore you to tears. But two, it's not the subject of a Michigan Constitution podcast. What I will tell you is that in this instance, you have a doctor of osteopathic medicine being alleged by the Department of Social Services to have received overpayments from Medicaid for allegedly unnecessary treatments being provided to his patients in 1978. Both parties to the lawsuit agreed that an administrative law judge came up with the correct dollar amount, about $57,844, or in 2021 monies, $243,300, and that those payments were overpayments that the doctor should not have received. Now, plaintiff Dr. Tomlin petitioned the Genesee Circuit Court to review the order entered against him by the administrative law judge, but the Genesee Circuit judge found that the $57,000 overpayment was supported by competent, material, and substantial evidence. But... Dr. Tomlin thought that this determination should have been made not by the judge, but by a jury. The Michigan Court of Appeals disagreed. They said that administrative proceedings, such as those with the Department of Social Services, is not a civil case at common law. And if it's not a past civil case at common law, it does not enjoy the constitutional right for a jury trial more so, the law in question expressly gives the Department of Social Services the legal authority to recover these types of overpayments. The Michigan Court of Appeals reiterates what we've come to learn by now. When the legislature has created a new public right and remedy, then the legislature has not violated Article 1, Section 14, right-to-jury trial provisions of the Michigan Constitution. So, two things. One, The legislature's authorization of the Department of Social Services to recover Medicaid overpayments was not a civil cause of action existing at the time the state constitution was adopted. And number two, that recovery of those Medicaid overpayments is not an action similar in character to cases in which the right to a jury trial existed at the time of the adoption of the state constitution. For that reason, the Michigan Court of Appeals held Dr. Tomlin did not have a constitutional right to a jury trial on his overpayment determination. Alright, we're back to the criminal side of jury trial requirements with People v. Cooks, a Michigan Supreme Court case from 1994. The reason I really like this case and want to highlight this case is because it addresses what to do when you've got a criminal defendant who is being charged with multiple acts of the same crime, but is convicted generally, not on a specific act. What am I talking about? Okay, here's the situation. Defendant Ricky Cooks was a pedophile. He sexually assaulted a girl under the age of 13 multiple times. As such, he was charged with one count of rape, but used the multiple occasions in which he sexually assaulted the young girl to prove the case. But the question became, what if the jury wasn't positive the defendant was guilty of any one specific allegation of sexual penetration against the young girl, but they did believe as an overall, yes, the defendant is likely guilty of this heinous act generally? That was the crux of the case here. The justices of the Michigan Supreme Court started their opinion off by noting that a criminal defendant has the right to a unanimous jury verdict. But the issue before the court was whether a general unanimity instruction to the jury was adequate considering the pattern of conduct offered as evidence of a single charge defense the court held that a specific unanimity instruction is not required in all cases in which more than one act is presented as evidence of a single criminal offense and again remember the prosecutor was alleging that ricky cooks had sexually assaulted this young girl multiple times but was only charging the defendant with one count of rape and the michigan supreme court is ruling here that the prosecutor has the right to present to the jury All these multiple occasions to get a conviction on the one rape charge being brought. Now, what the defendant wanted was for the prosecutor to have to prove that a rape happened on a specific date at a specific time and that the defendant did indeed sexually assault the young girl on that date. But that's not the requirement, said the Supremes. The Michigan Supreme Court reasoned that the question to determine is whether either party, that being the prosecutor or the defendant, Has presented evidence that materially distinguishes any of the alleged multiple acts from the others. Therefore, where materially identical evidence is presented with respect to each act, a general unanimity instruction to the jury will suffice. The justices found that the evidence presented by the prosecutor against Cooks was materially identical with regard to all three of the alleged sexual acts. So the court does a really nice job setting up a little test, which I think helps better clarify what all this means. The general instruction to the jury saying they must be unanimous that the criminal defendant committed the alleged criminal act will be fine unless one of the two aspects occurs.
0: If there are alternative actions taken by the defendant where those acts themselves are conceptually distinct or at least one of the two sides can show
1: that there were distinct actions taken by the defendant. So what does this mean in layman's speak? Well, let's go back to the overarching allegations that this defendant sexually assaulted the girl on multiple occasions, but he's not being charged with one specific day and time. Rape instance. He's being charged generally because all the elements of the rape would be exactly the same. She was under 13 didn't give consent, and he inserted himself into her. Those elements are going to be the same elements whether the assault happened on the first of the month, the 15th of the month, or the 30th of the month. But if any one of those elemental aspects change, well then it's a potentially different crime. And if the elements change, you know, perhaps on the 15th he merely kissed her. That's a different crime, so a general finding of guilt wouldn't be allowed. They would have to decide if he was guilty of sexual assault on the first, but maybe only lewd conduct on the 15th due to the kissing. So that's one scenario where a general finding of guilt for multiple acts would not be allowed. The second
0: way a general finding of guilt would not be allowed is if there's a reason to believe the jury might be confused or disagree about the factual basis of the defendant's
1: guilt. This exception is a little harder to explain because the situations are going to be very fact-specific. A judge will need to look at the criminal charge, the relevant facts in that case, and determine whether the jury would likely be confused about or disagree with the facts of the alleged crime. If that's the case, the judge might very well give a specific instruction to the jury that they must find that the criminal defendant did X on Y date regarding Z crime. Now, the Supreme Court in our case believed that the evidence offered did support the alleged acts of a sexual assault against the girl because the evidence was materially identical in each and every rape. The girl testified to the penetration, that it occurred in the same house over an unspecified three-day period in January, and it was done when only she and the defendant were in the room. Therefore, the Michigan Supreme Court justices ruled the multiple acts alleged by the prosecutor were tantamount to a continuous course of conduct. More so, the court found the defendant did not present a separate defense or any materially distinct evidence regarding this particular act, meaning the defendant didn't show or even try to show a different crime had occurred. The Michigan Supreme Court concluded by declaring when a prosecutor offers evidence of multiple acts of the same crime by a defendant, each of which would satisfy a completed crime, the trial court may give a general instruction to the jury that its verdict must be unanimous unless one of those two exceptions that we talked about, you know, that being the different elements of a crime or a confused jury, that any of that had occurred. For that reason, the Michigan Supreme Court ruled in favor of the prosecutor. And that's going to do it for episode number 38 of the Michigan Constitution Podcast. Please reach out to me at TonySnyder.com or I'm on Twitter. I'm at Tony Snyder. We'll talk to you next time.
0: The Michigan Constitution Podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not offer legal advice or create an attorney-client relationship. This podcast is hosted by Tony Snyder. For more information, visit TonySnyder.com send an email to podcast at tonysnyder.com or follow Tony on Twitter at Tony Snyder. Catch new episodes on the 1st and 15th of each month. Thanks for listening.